If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. .NET Rocks is being sponsored today by Text Control, the company behind TX Text Control, a Microsoft Word-inspired document editor library and document processing engine for your applications. TX Text Control is fully customizable and programmable and is available for most platforms, including ASP.NET MVC, Web Forms, WPF, and Windows Forms. Recently, they released their Angular and Node.js versions that allow the integration of WYSIWYG document editing into your web apps. TX Text Control really shines in applications that do mail merging and reporting, where Microsoft Word-compatible templates are merged with JSON data in the client, or pure server-side applications that create Adobe PDF documents. So, try TX Text Control for free and see the live demos at textcontrol.com slash demos. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all this year's NDC conferences are now being held online only. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. So go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, I'm at home. Yeah, we're both at home. I'm not in the studio today. I'm actually also using a a very rare for me to do, but a Logitech USB noise-canceling headset. Hmm, gaming headset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kind of use it when I'm on the road and stuff, and um, I just didn't feel like pulling out the, the bigger microphones today. So, you know, if, if it really bothers anyone, let me know and I won't use it again. But, um, hey, I want to tell you before we do Better Know Framework, one of the places that I went in uh, just outside of Philly on the Blazer Road Show, this place was actually in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and it's called BluebirdDistilling.com. Oh, yeah. What do they distill there? Well, okay. So it's a distillery where they make their own spirits, and they only sell their own spirits in their bar and gastropub. Okay. So bourbons, scotches, and I say scotches, but, you know, scotch-style whiskey, Irish-style whiskey, gin, even rum. And they they have all these things in bottles. And if you follow my Twitter, at Carl Franklin, you'll see a tweet, uh, you know, the, the wall of whiskey. And I actually bought one of their um, – I bought a couple of bottles, and I'm having the American Wheat Whiskey right now. Nice. 
So uh, is it actually a bourbon? Like, is it corn and wheat or is it wheat all the way down? Well, they have a four grain bourbon. Yeah. So that's mostly corn, of course, because it has to be 61%. Right. Or 51. 51%. Yeah. 51% corn. Uh, then there's wheat and then there's rye and barley as well. So it's got a little bit of Irish taste, but this one is the American wheat whiskey. Right. So it's um, it's not all wheat. There is some no. corn in there, but and they're it's not calling like, it bourbon. They, so they probably didn't eat, follow the aging rules or something. Probably not, and I'm not exactly sure what it is. But you can go to BluebirdDistilling.com and check it out. So if you're anywhere near uh, Philadelphia, Phoenixville in in particular, stop in and see these guys. They're really really great, and tell them I sent you. Awesome. All right. So that aside, I want to know what's new with you, Richard Campbell. I, uh, you know, life changes, daughter moving out and getting married. So that, that's yeah. a little disruptive. Congrat, you know, I'm excited about it, but it's still, you Congratulations, know. Congratulations, Katie. Change is happening. Yeah. Good for her. And, and uh, she just happens to be getting married while NDC Oslo is going. Yeah. On. So I will not be at NDC Oslo because, uh, priorities. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, and this is a new recording rig. So I'm engineering today and we've re- rewired everything. Uh, I've been uh, gearing up, trying some different equipment, trying to modernize. Yeah, modernize. That's an interesting. I have to modernize the hell out of my studio because I have a whole closet full of stuff yeah. that needs to just go. Well, you know, I pulled what I, one of the things I pulled up was that Telos One Plus One, which is actually an expensive device, but they haven't it made is. it for years. But think about this. Can you remember the last uh, – Telos One Plus One is a telephone hybrid. When is the right. last time we had a guest on a phone line? It's been years. It's been years and years. And 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 even if I did have someone who had to use a phone line, they had no other option, I would call them through Skype. Right. Right? At two cents a minute. Like, what do I care? Right? It makes right. no difference rather than trying to use the phone line on the, with the telephone hybrid. So, yeah, I haven't had the yeah. telephone hybrid on in a long time. So, it was good to pull it from the rack. But I started .NET Rocks using a Telos One. Actually, no, I was using something even worse than that. Telos is actually good stuff, and that's what NPR used. Yeah, it's for premium the time. product, no two ways about it. Priced accordingly, right? Like, there's not yeah. any expensive equipment. But I remember having some sort of telephone hybrid that I got from Broadcast Supply World, BSW, and uh, it just didn't do a really good enough job of getting rid of the other side of the call. Right. And so there was still this. <laughs> And I had to edit all that stuff out. I'm talking uh, about 2002 here. Man, that sucks. And once the Telos 1 came around and it was just like almost complete silence on the other it end. It was magic. It was magic, yeah. And the OnePlus One has two of them. Two of them and they're brown, bounded. So you could have two lines. Right. So what we would do is Richard would call into one phone line and I would record that as a sync track. Yep. And then we would call the guest on the other line and record them just in isolation yeah. by themselves and it worked yeah it was one of the magical things of podcasting in the day of just because yeah. we fixed all the steps nobody ever stepped on each other they just everything sounded smooth it's yep. all a lie <laughs> it's all a lie yeah that's right <laughs> but yeah all that stuff's finally out of my rack and uh simplify right the little equipment's a little easier these days and although we haven't really said it in a while richard is in vancouver british columbia and i'm in new london connecticut yes. so we're doing all this stuff through the magic of Skype, but we're, we're recording our tracks locally. Yeah, that's all. Just using the internet to see. Go up. back and listen to episode 1100. We describe the rig that largely hasn't changed. True enough. Well, you want to do a little uh, Better Know? Yeah, let's get on with it and roll the crazy music for Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? 
this being show 1681, mm-hmm. you can go to 1681.pwop.me uh, and get the Better Know Framework link that will bring you to a GitHub project uh, in the Blazor extensions mm-hmm. called Canvas. Hmm. And it's an HTML5 Canvas API implementation from Microsoft Blazor. Interesting. Right. So, so is this client side Blazor then? Both. Oh. Blazor is Blazor. I mean, the component model works in both places. Okay. But this means you're poking into the can- HTML Canvas, which means WebGL, you know, this is yeah. like sort of gaming and, and CAD libraries. Right. I mean, so it's a, you know, basically, Blazor has JavaScript interop. So you can call any uh, JavaScript function from mm-hmm. C sharp and you can also call any C sharp function from JavaScript. So it has this nice interop layer. And in both the server side Blazor and the client side Blazor, all the JavaScript is obviously in the browser. Right. But then the whole, um, you know, how do I call it? How do I interop with it? All of that is handled on the server side through communication over SignalR. And then, you know, on the client side, it's obviously more direct. But still, that JavaScript is running in the browser, of course. But this is a cool way to sort of create a component that wraps a JavaScript widget or whatever. I think Telerik controls are, the the Blazor controls are simply... um, component, you know, Blazor component wrappers that use JavaScript interrupt to interact with their JavaScript widgets. Right. You know, so if you have a JavaScript widget that you like, and you can just sort of create this Blazor wrapper over it, and now you're, you can program in C Sharp. And this is one of the examples of that. That's cool. Very interesting. It opens huge possibilities. And just, although it's written, I mean, nothing that they've necessarily implemented per se, like, just thinking about what WebAssembly means, this ability to interop with all of the JavaScript libraries, is it's huge. Totally. And I also want to reiterate that server-side Blazor works as well. Cool. So you're going to have more of a lag between your interactions with server-side Blazor. So, but uh, once WebAssembly is baked in May, this might become very, very popular. Yeah. Among those graphic people. For sure. That's what I got. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grab the comment off a show 1619, which we did with Mr. Love one year ago, roughly, January 2019, talking about SEO and from a developer's perspective, like what did developers need to know about search engine optimization? And this uh, comment comes from D. Camper, who says, uh, great episode, love the advice from Chris. I'd like to particularly echo the value of using a content delivery network, CDN. I've massively improved the performance of sites simply by putting Cloudflare in front of them. One thing yeah. to be aware of is that by default, CDNs is they only cache static assets, your JavaScript, CSS, images, and so on. But you can get a huge boost by selectively caching pages, such as uh, the front page or what we in, in the biz call the landing page, right? Did a lot of yeah. – when, when you recognize – if you're in the sort of business of – of getting people down a pipeline, say, to buy something. You talk about bounce rate or how many people only hit the homepage and don't go any further than that, that landing page. And one of the ways we reduced landing page bounces was by making the landing page the fastest page on the site. That when that page landed in under two seconds, it was made a measurable difference in getting them further down the pipeline. And uh, so all those CDNs, every tool you've got, to uh, to make, I mean, the crazy stage at Strange Loop was when we would render a landing page 
as a page with no assets. So we'd simply embed everything, even images as sprites into the page. So you loaded one <laughs> file, boom, there you go. You know, it's not, it's tough to maintain that. So there's a whole generation process and so on. But if you only wanted speed, I got your speed right here. Uh, nice. Once, uh, once you, D goes on to say, once you've got our CDN in place, the next step is to move resources that aren't loaded from your domain, like fonts and libraries and things. Uh, and the reason for this is because if they're on a CDN externally, you can add the cost of a DNS lookup and SSL negotiation request. They're on your domain. You get to skip all that. Often fonts can block a page from rendering properly or cause the page to re-render too. Uh, and that extra work can have a significant performance impact. And uh, he also calls out to webpagetest.org, one of my favorite sites. Been used it for years and years and years. This shows you what happens as your page loads and helps you understand how browsers render your page pages and what users will see and in different locations. Mm. So you can basically ask, hey, would you load this page from India for me? And it'll give you the performance experiences of that. And you can also select what wow. browser it renders on. So uh, free service, although you can pay for different parts of it. You can include it in a CI CD pipeline. Uh, great tool. So, D, thanks so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We uh, publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell and I'm at Carl Franklin. And uh, send us a tweet in two dimensions. <laughs> Well, put it on a canvas. <laughs> we'll put it on a canvas. Yeah, that's it. All right. So let's bring back to the show our old friend, our good friend, Mr. Let's Be Efficient with HTML and JavaScript, Chris Love. He is a front-end developer for people and companies who are lost in the sea of modern web and user experience standards. He has a quarter century of web development experience and has built a wide variety of websites and apps in those years. In recent years, he immersed himself in responsive web design, single-page web applications, and web performance optimization. He applies these interests to run a small web consulting company, Love2Dev, that's the number two, that focuses on user-first web applications that operate on all device classes and usage contexts. Love2Dev offers web development and analysis to help companies engage end users and operate more efficiently. Welcome back, Chris. How you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. Uh, I guess I need to add, I guess I need to, add to that bio that uh, I really specialize in progressive web apps, since we've that's actually true. talked about that on I one mean, of my interviews. So. Yeah, that's right. The last time you were on, we were talking about PWAs. Well, last time we were talking about SEO, I think the time before we were focusing on the progressive web app stuff, but it all it all kind of rolls all, together. So it's all a blur for me. You know, the one thing, the two things that don't go well together are spas and SEO. Isn't that true? Uh, it absolutely is. Um, and I know what we're really supposed to talk about today, but we can we can slide into that a little bit. But uh, uh, yeah, so like the search engines will say they can. They can parse the uh, like a front end framework like Angular or React or whatever, and they can. It just doesn't doesn't really go as well as you think. Uh, they do index those pages, but there's there's so many ranking factors involved. Um, and we know, and I know I'm going to take heat from this, but uh, I know that React takes about 22 seconds to render on average, and Angular takes like 29 seconds on on. Uh, to, on average to render. I, it does not surprise me you have those numbers in your pocket, friend. Well, and I'm pulling those from the HTTP archive, right. um, 
which uh, you know, I think I think Richard, you probably know who they are, but basically yeah. they they run continuous tests using I think they use web page te- test infrastructure mm-hmm. to uh, iterate over. I think they're doing five million sites now. They they start off with a half a million. I think they're up to five million every every two weeks, and they run it both desktop and mobile. And you can query the data through BigQuery. All the data is made available. Uh, and so I know there's one query that's been posted in the forums where you can actually just sit there and query and, and break out the a- average rendering time for sites with React and Angular and Vue and different frameworks and stuff like right. that. So that, that's that's where I'm getting those numbers from. So before we get into jQuery is obsolete, which is a great, great topic, um, uh, have you looked at Blazor? Do you know what the uh, the download is for the WebAssembly and for the server side? What the initial well, hit is? I, I mean, it's it's honestly it's not that any of interest to me. I guess I know I know you're like into it big time, but uh, uh, when I looked at it, uh, what a year or so ago, I think it was like around five megs to download the the package. Is at least what I was yeah, seeing. Two, uh, it's two now for WebAssembly. Okay, well, I, I figured they, they did it, but uh, I kind of, I kind of, honestly, I kind of look at it this way: Silverlight and Flash are dead for a reason, and uh, this is kind of like version two of those. Uh, oh, but, come uh, on, dude! Yeah, be, the same be, time, be educated same time, at least. If, if, you know, but if it's I'm, not but Silverlight and it's not Flash, it's not a plugin model. I know it's not. It's it's using yeah. WebAssembly, which it's you know, the same I, sandbox that JavaScript runs in. I, I, I'm not going to be able to comment on it because I don't I don't follow it enough. What I do know is that WebAssembly is really good for things like high-end gaming type stuff uh, and and things that are, I would say, crazy mathematical requirements. Uh, you know, I just don't have enough demand on me to follow into it, to kind of really dive into it. I just – when they first started showing to me, and I'm like five megs to download to just – because they're just showing me to do basic forms. And I'm like, I don't I don't see the gist for that. Well, so. <laughs> it's, it's two megs now, and um, by contrast, Gmail is five megs. Right and Angular is probably even more than that. I don't know what Angular is, but well, what I what I what I see with the framework sites is it generally it generally comes down to what you pack into it. I've I've had somebody come to me with a uh, a fifty meg payload of JavaScript uh, for a really simple site just because they didn't have things configured correctly. So you know it it all kind of varies, I guess. So well, and speaking of you know big downloads and stuff, let's talk about jQuery. Sure. Well, I wouldn't even consider that a big download these days. Uh, when you look at like React and, and Angular and Vue uh, comparatively, uh, I was actually looking at the payload size on the latest version. I think it's down to like 64k or something. Well, like. that's good. But jQuery yeah. had its place in history, and it was the right solution at the right time when all the browser DOMs were different, right? And that's why oh. people, and I think especially, you know, the the enterprise developers who never really got into proper JavaScript really liked it. Well, um, yeah, I remember, you know, let's say early 2000s um, timeframe, JavaScript was like this horrible, horrible place to be. And uh, I remember I had one JavaScript book and I couldn't even get past the first chapter. It made no sense to me. Uh, (laughs) And and, uh, so like the only thing I ever used it for was like image rollovers to, to swap images out. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was like the scary place. That problem. Um, well, it, it made, it made client side JavaScript, uh, approachable. And I think it really solved two issues because, you know, 15 years ago, we had a diverse browser landscape, even though Internet Explorer was the dominant one when John Rezig made jQuery at the bar camp, right? Um, but the, we still had, we had Firefox at the time. I don't even think Chrome had even been created yet. Nope, that's before Chrome's uh, time. Exactly. So we really had two dominant browsers and they both did things slightly differently there was there was not the cadre of web standards 
and standardization bodies around things like we have today. But I think jQuery drove that uh, to standardization, which made everybody's lives easier. And you can look at basically around 2008 is when things really started blowing up. Um, you know, Reza wrote uh, jQuery uh, sometime in 2006. Yep. And at the time, we kind of had uh, Prototype had gotten some traction and i think dojo was out there maybe maybe move to move tools i can't quite remember the uh the exact timeline on those i never got into uh, uh dojo and move tools uh and i only looked at prototype briefly because there was a site that i was asked to maintain that had it on there um but i, I don't really remember the the whole gist about it but the the thing about jquery i think there was two key pieces from a developer point of view uh, the number one is the documentation was spot on. It was easy to read and understand, and I think that makes a huge difference. Um, just over the past year for me, something that's the, I think the main thing that's really tripped me up on getting things done on time has been third-party documentation for APIs. It's just been horrible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I get these like one and two word error messages that don't tell me anything and there's nothing in the documentation about it. And, uh, you know, what fields are actually required or not required and, were required with this field, but not that field. You know, all, the, all these different mutations of, of things. And this is it's driven me crazy. But with jQuery, we had documentation that every piece of it was, seemed to be documented exactly the way it actually wanted to work. And then, of course, the other side of it is it normalized browser stuff and added functionality that the browser didn't have. So in 2006, the only way to select a DOM element was by get element by ID. That right. was it. And we didn't have the ability to select by classes or, or element name uh, and, and all those kind of things. So what, what Resig did was he wrote Sizzle, which was a selection engine, to parse over the XML that is the DOM. And, and I say that loosely because I know somebody's going to say, well, it's not true XML, but you, know, you get the gist. Um, and, and anytime you, you, you query and parse XML, you know, you know hats off to you if you want to follow through with it. <laughs> but uh, there's a reason why we switched to JSON, I think. So... Um, but yeah, I think that forced the browsers to say, okay, we got to create something that works better. And that's, that's ultimately what's happened. And I think on top of that, what that's caused, uh, not only helping us build more robust, interactive, uh, more client side dynamic applications is it's, it's also given the browsers incentive to really make all kinds of native functionality in the browser. There's, mm -hmm. there's almost zero differential between a native application uh, uh, API surface area and the web surface area. There's still, there's still a few what I call outlier things. Um, and there, there are features that I don't think are super high demand, even though people make a lot of noise about it. So, um, like geofencing is one thing that comes to mind. And I see a lot of people squawk about that. But, you know, I don't think the average person really wants geofencing because it's kind of creepy. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think your average, I don't think your average small business, which is one of the key scenarios, are like, oh, the little cafe down the street wants to send you a coupon every time you walk down the sidewalk. Right. I don't. I, I know enough about how little small businesses like that run to know that they're never going to be able to to keep up with that or or afford a service on a monthly basis to send out those coupons. Uh, well, you know, the the iPhone 11 has semi sort of geofencing stuff built in like when you turn wi-fi off if you're out once you get back home to a known wi-fi location it just turns on again but um, it, it won't just like you know you can't say on the iphone 11 i don't think anyway you know only use wi-fi in these spots that are sanctioned by me otherwise don't connect to any 
That's interesting. I haven't really heard about that. I don't have an iPhone 11. Uh, they're way expensive, so. <laughs> but uh, I've still got an iPhone 6. I got an upgrade soon because I can't get the uh, the latest version of iOS if I don't get a new phone, which I think is sad. Uh, so I mean, I can still put w- the latest version of Windows 10 on my 12 year old laptop. That's no problem. So yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So uh, so yeah, you know, um, I, you know, jQuery has this fantastic place in history where it it really was the polyfill for the modern web, if sure, you will. Sure. Yeah, and it made so many things possible. And at the same time, it kind of, like, a lot of developers didn't want to learn JavaScript, and they could follow a lot of examples, mm-hmm. and and things would just magically work. And then you had this proliferation of the plugin ecosystem. And the only thing that I've seen that parallels that, and at least that I've personally looked at, is the, the WordPress uh, plugin infrastructure ecosystem. Right. Uh, as far as, like, just available options to find all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Um, but, you know, today we, it, it's kind of a downside, if you will. Um, and this kind of falls into, I love the way you kind of set up the, the, uh, the episode here, because you were talking about the kind of the evolution of your podcast infra, uh, infrastructure and, and uh, electronics and stuff yeah. like that. And, and I think anybody who's listening to this podcast and you've got, any kind of age on you, you're probably like the three of us. I've got a whole basement and I've probably got three bins of old uh, electronic stuff down oh, there, yeah. I- including, a, I think, a five or $600 hub that I had at one point. Oh, <laughs> so. dude, like retiring, look at that Telos and how much we spent on them at the time. I know they're yeah. a couple grand. Yeah. They, but I have like that weekend haul out where I got rid of that gear. That's I, more than a ton worth of stuff sitting in my garage right now to go to the electronics recycler. Like, oh, the most the most painful one I had to do is my first server I ever bought was ten thousand dollars, and uh, I remember throwing that out. And it's junk. Right? It really <laughs> yeah, is just junk. Yeah, I hadn't even had it on in like six years. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sitting there. It was a it was a two U server. I think it had two hundred fifty six megabyte no gigabytes of disk storage. Yeah, it had half a half a gig of RAM, and it was ten thousand yeah. dollars. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, but it ran it ran so much stuff back in the early two thousands for me. Yeah, so. no, it was a magic machine. Oh yeah, I had uh, I had three hundred and fifty websites on that at one point, and it was like that's crazy two, four, two to four percent CPU load. So yeah, I pulled up W three text to look up the current adoption on jQuery, and its numbers are still going up. So I actually ran some queries this morning just to make sure I had kind of the latest numbers. Yeah, using the uh, the HTTP archive. There's um, so HTTP Archive, like I said, collects all that data. They also um, copy it over to Google's BigQuery. Right. And it's uh-huh. public data sets. You just have to add it to your profile. And there's instructions on their side to do it. So since I haven't done it in like three years, I won't walk you through it. But um, but uh, one of the data sets that they parse out essentially is like uh, allows you to, to look to see what kind of libraries and frameworks are being used and what versions of those are being used. So I actually ran uh, a query on that this morning. Right. And uh, so there's like 5 million websites and roughly uh, 85 to 86% of them are running a version of jQuery. And what version? The, the predominant version is 1.12. So the ori- which was r- original. Um, well, no, not really. Uh, the original came out in 2006 1.12 came out in 2016 okay um and there was you know there's all these like little super minor iterations at that point when it went from one version 1x to two was when they dropped the iea below support right out of it and so that's why Um, people stick with one to this day 
which I have no clue why. Uh, I have no clue. When someone says we have to write a new website to support IE9, I just I just put my hand my head well, my hands well, like IE8, right? But the bottom line is the devs not probably deciding that they, they're not going to argue with the boss on it. The boss says I want this. It has to support all browsers. Then you yeah, do it. well, I mean, since Microsoft, I think, was it five years now since they've deprecated Internet Explorer? Yeah. I mean, move on. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. my, wife, my, wife's com- my wife's company standard is Internet Explorer. And I said, why do y'all do that? She goes, because the CTO just hasn't got the memo yet. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, Come on, dude. Well, and now um, the, um, the, late, the new version of Edge, the Edge with the Chromium engine, mm-hmm. on the enterprise side, it's now running. It also has the IE11 engine in it. Yeah, so and, it, and that's all. That's all group policy stuff. Yeah. And that's where it should sit. Public sites, you shouldn't bother with Internet Explorer. No, not if you've at all. got old internal applications that let's just say are too expensive to migrate. Yep. That's why that. That's why the Internet Explorer mode is an edge. Yeah. And you can control that with group policy. Yes. Uh, they've got all their instructions up there. But basically, when someone goes to a URL on, on the site that's old, it'll just automatically open it in that IE yes. mode for you. And now and it used to, to be that we'd actually it. launch the old browser as well. Now it doesn't even do mm-hmm. that. Although that is only recent. That's only in the past few months that they've gotten. Yeah, that I, have, I haven't followed it enough to to know where that's sitting. But you know, if nothing else, the the, the advantage you get is not only do you get the IE engine, but you also get the advanced, more modern security uh, wall yeah. around it, so to speak. Yeah. And from an enterprise point of view, that's definitely something that you should be looking at. If you're still running a browser that Microsoft hasn't hasn't updated in five years. And, you know, you're not worried about security, you know. Well, presumably uh, you're only <laughs> using that browser to hit an internal site that needs it. I mean, it's what yeah. the nice thing with that edge integration is if as soon as you hop to a different site, even if you just type in the, say you've got the IE11 engine running on that internal site, mm-hmm. you type in a new URL, it flips back to Edge Chromium. Exactly. Right. And that, that's what it should be. The user shouldn't know what engine's actually being used. No. And, and it should not be possible to run that old engine out onto the public internet. Exactly. Exactly. So. Sorry, two angry IT guys talking. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, I, I don't have to deal with it as much, uh, lately. I just, uh, it just kind of, uh, my wife was showing me some stuff Friday afternoon on, on from that she was walking through and work. And I was like, why are you using Internet Explorer? <laughs> I didn't even realize she was using it. Um, so uh, if you're running anyway. Win 10, they go to great lengths to hide IE from you. Like it's it, exactly. pretty hard to yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think her company just, you know, begrudgingly upgraded everybody to Windows 10 just because Windows 7 died. What was it last month when it when yep. it went out of finally the, uh, out of support? Finally, yeah, yay, <laughs> yay. Uh, in the, in the, but isn't that funny? We, we were cheering the 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 deprecation and retirement of of something we 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 lived with so much. Well, no, you know? Look, I have nothing bad to say about I about Windows Seven. You know, no, it was a great operating yeah, one, system. One would argue the greatest that my, of of the, the Windows guys ever made. Um, you know, Win Ten has had terrible problems because they've been experimenting with new models. So you know, people are a little frustrated with Win Ten, even though it's sort of the end of the road for us. They're only just starting to figure out the right way to update Win 10. I think the next, this year, next year is going to be the period where we're, where the operating system truly just drops into the background. You just don't even think about it anymore. Well, you know, well, in my point of view, I've, I've always been an advocate of a browser based operating system. So like the, you know, the Chrome OS is, you know, even though I don't even have a Chromebook, I love that model because to me, it just, it just makes it a UI. It kind of rolls it back to kind of that, that dumb terminal of the uh, you know the seventies and eighties kind of thing, and it, it makes the client side a lot thinner and easier to manage in my For opinion. Sure. So, ironically, Chris, I think WebAssembly 
is the operating system inside the browser and outside the browser that will become the cross-platform standard of software development in the future. But you're still, but you're still within that browser, con, Context, you know, yeah. uh, confined. And that, that's really what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Well, I know you're. I mean, you can like you can run you can run Chakra and V8 outside of a browser, mm-hmm. right? Well, and, that's today. But yeah. I, I think WebAssembly outside of the browser has more of a potential in the future for client side development, even than you know trying to build mo- native mobile apps or native apps for the for those operating systems. I mean, I look at things like Web Window. I mean, it's still in the browser, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of like electron light. But there are also new uh, things that take WebAssembly out of the browser and onto the operating system. And that, to me, is very exciting. So you could run it on a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Or on Windows or on Mac or on Linux. Right. Well, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you're just you're abstracting it away so you can write in one code base, compile it and and not worry about where it's sitting. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's I don't want to I don't want to take over the topic, but I think it's. Uh, you know, ironic where the browser is becoming the default operating system. And then I think in the future, we're going to be talking about WebAssembly as being that particular thing. But that's just, that's just me putting on my future hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, I, the IT mindset likes the browser because the security model is already in place. Installing software on, on desktop sucks. It just, mm-hmm. it's, no, but the it's security brutal. model is built into WebAssembly. Yes, when but it's as soon as uh, security yeah. model is part of the browser container. So as soon as you talk about right. we're going to go out of the browser, you just obviated that. So right. I don't convince they'll do that. What it, we well, like about it, it is it is today. safe. Yeah. But it'll have to be a totally different kind of app and we're back to the same deployment problems. Yeah. But anyways, we need to take a break and uh, pay some bills here. So sorry, Chris, uh, give me one moment here for this very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all this year's NDC conferences are now being held online only. You can still attend the workshops and sessions but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12th to 16th. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. And we're talking to our friend Chris Love. The debate is long and arduous as usual. But I think we wanted to talk a bit about jQuery because, boy, you know, based on these stats, it is the most popular JavaScript library in the world. Right. Yeah. And and like I, like you were, we were getting to... Like version 1.2 is the most popular. I think that was 35% or somewhere in that ballpark of yeah. the actual jQuery installations. I think the current version, which is 3.4, was somewhere around 4 or 5% uh, of that number. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is, is kind of sad because generally you want to stay current with stuff. But honestly, what happens is you, you write an application and no one bothers to keep the dependencies up to date, which is very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that eventually comes back to bite you and to me it falls under what i call software entropy uh you could also say software decay is another term i'm kind of thinking about lately right um and uh uh, i kind of crossed i I was listening i was watching some action thing the other day they were talking about the half-life of uh radiation and i was like oh it's sort of like the half-life of software (laughs) (laughs) 
it's it's only it's really great up until that half life, and then it starts decaying in its you know uh, potency. And uh, but I, let, let me give you a case study from one of my clients last year. Not not twenty eight nineteen, but twenty eighteen. It uh, doesn't really matter. But um, I was helping them convert everything to a progressive web app. Okay, uh, yeah. but this uh, site honestly. It was really poorly written to begin with, and but it had jQuery splattered all over it, which you know isn't the worst thing uh, per se. But uh, I see this a lot though: is that people will will select a jQuery plugin, let's say, and that jQuery plugin is of course open source, and it has be- basically been abandoned for years. In the, in the case of this one particular plugin, I think it had been abandoned for five or six years, hadn't been updated at all, and it was a wrapper. It was more or less uh, hooked into the early pre-standardization of the uh, media capture API. In other words, using the camera to actually, you know, take a uh, picture is what they were doing uh, of things. And the problem was it was hooked into the old pre, like I said, pre-standard version of what actually became the media capture API. Well, Chrome decided to pull that support out for that un standardized API call, and all of a sudden, every one of their deployments with all of their customers suddenly broke. And wow. they, went, they went into a panic, and um, you know, I actually know how to talk to Media Capture API and have a little library that I used to make it even easier, uh, and I offered to help them out. I was like, it'll take me a few hours, and they, they, were, they had gone through like four or five of these iterations of these fire you know, things blowing up every time Chrome made an update and pulled old support features, which happens over time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they, I think they were just like fed up of, of that kind of scenario going on. And so they kind of like, they kind of like pulled the plug on stuff because, um, I mean, the, the stakeholders of business types feel beholden to us and they feel like they don't understand what's going on with us a lot of times. Right. And so they, they were freaking out and they just really thought it was uh, a problem of the technology, like the browsers itself and the web, rather than the fact that their developers were using obsolete code. And that's what I was trying to explain to them. And they did, they couldn't, if they were in such a fire mode trying to save all their customers that they, they couldn't stop and listen to, you know, the, the simple message I was trying to tell them at the point. But, but I see that all the time. You see, I see a lot of plugins that are out there like that, or yeah, the jQuery plugins. And, uh, and, and that can be very problematic because you're, you're essentially hinging your dependency. You're outsourcing your success on something that more or less isn't even being maintained, which is if you look around GitHub, I mean, I see more and more uh, public projects that are essentially just becoming abandoned. Um, uh, like yesterday, I was uh, I was setting up a new project and I used uh, a, 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 a node uh, a lambda thing, and I was going to put request in there. And I went to the request page on npm, and they were like, "Yeah, we just uh, deprecated that two weeks ago." And I'm like, "Wow, that's like one of the most popular node modules out wow. there is request." Yeah. Yeah. And so they deprecated it. And I'm thinking, well, should I use this or should I try to figure out how to use the <laughs> the, the raw HTTP uh, stuff built into Node? And I'm like, oh, I think I'll still stick with this since I know how to use it. Because. <laughs> But I'm like, okay, I got to put a check mark by all these projects that I have that have requests built into them, and, and decide, okay, what am I going to do to make sure these things don't fall apart in the next few years? So, um, so that was, that's kind of one of those problems you get into when you've got these dependencies on things. So, and, I, and I'm seeing that more and more as we've uh, kind of matured. Uh, it's not, it's not just a jQuery thing. It's, it's a, any kind of dependency on something you didn't write, kind of thing, in my opinion, and not knowing what the actual uh, base API actually is. And I think that's another uh, key problem. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we use these libraries for a reason and they're open source for a reason too. Like just because they're deprecated or people don't want to maintain them doesn't mean you still can't use them. They're, they're oh, yeah. productivity boosters. 
Right. Well, in theory, they're productivity boosters. Um, sometimes I feel like I spend more time hacking around them to actually get get them to finally do what the actual customer wants to be done than it to, than it was just to write it from scratch. Uh, and I have to look at them and, and weigh, okay, how long is it going to take me to hack this thing to make it look like what the customer wants right. versus just writing it from scratch? And, is it really going to save me time? But yeah, isn't that an education question then? Like, do I need to know more to be able to be successful with this? Right. And and sometimes, you know, you know, like if if I don't know enough about an API yet, then I'm going to probably choose a library, but I have to know that I had need to have a plan to sometime in the near future know how to replace that library and the dependencies I have in it. Um, so, you know, like with jQuery, the one thing that made me hold on to jQuery probably a year or two longer than I wanted to was the fact that I never had enough time to stop and just write simple um uh, XHR code, you know, Ajax calls, right? Which wound up actually being a couple, three dozen lines of code or something like that. I can't remember uh, to to make one of those calls. Um, and but that that's like thirty or forty percent of jQuery at the time was just the Ajax stack, and then the other part of it right. was Sizzle. That's like the vast majority of jQuery mm-hmm. are those two components. Uh, and one of the nice things about the more modern jQuery, which makes it a lot more tolerable, is the fact that you can actually build your own custom version of jQuery. They made it modular, so you can essentially run a script and say, only include these pieces to it. And so you can, you know, ideally take out the, the Ajax stuff, which you don't need anymore, and take out the uh, the Sizzle engine, because honestly, it's just going to be bypassed anyway, because the way they changed it, I think in 2.0, it could have been 3.0. That if the native APIs are there to select elements, then it doesn't even bother calling the Sizzle engine anymore. So you really don't need that because that's they've those have been there for a decade now right. at least. So you don't need you don't need Sizzle. Uh, so there's you know a few other ones that I, I probably wouldn't bother adding in there too. There's actually a whole deprecated module and stuff like you know set of module or functions and stuff you can take out. So you can you can essentially throw a bunch of stuff overboard and actually make a pretty lean jQuery. I think I've gotten it down. Somewhere in the twenty kilobytes, hmm. or something like that. Wow. I haven't, I haven't really looked at. I mean, I, I throw it in some of my projects occasionally. Like, uh, like one thing I don't do, I will not, I still refuse to write code, is to actually write code to write to create charts. I just think that's yeah. there's, there's too many good charting libraries that are yeah, out there. Exactly. Yeah, and and you know, uh, the one I'm using on a project right now actually does have a jQuery dependency, and, and honestly, it was like, yeah, <laughs> it's just going to be a lot easier just to throw it in there because it's only one page we got charts on on this whole application, and I'm like, yeah, it's just let's just do it that way. Well, and you already implied so, this, like one of the reasons jQuery is on so many pages, not because people really want to use jQuery, but but it, almost any library you touch has it seems to have a dependency on jQuery. Yeah, I do make a, I do make an effort to try to find. Uh, libraries without any external dependencies as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there's just a hair bit more code, just because I know um, there's not going to be like that extra like fourth party dependency, so to speak. Right. Uh, that, you know, if that one goes down, this one goes down too. It's, a, it's a, It'll be a chain kind of reaction. Goodness help us if jQuery, you know, went away in any way. Like, my goodness, like the damage to the internet. Yeah, you know, you hear the browser guys talk about we got to make sure we we slowly make these changes to not break the web. I mean, if literally if jQuery just vanished, the, the web wouldn't break because all those copies are all floating everywhere. Yeah, but, there's many uh, many but, but, local copies. But, but, but the theory is, yeah, a lot of stuff would probably break. But if you're, but if the vast majority are still using 1.12, um, and that's still been around for you know what so six seven years now, whatever five years, I don't know. Um, 
you know, it is what it is. But uh, um, the other, other thing that I see a lot of times in the jQuery space that, that is very problematic too, and I think this is, I think WordPress is like the primary culprit of this, is WordPress plugins will include jQuery in there and just assume that you don't have jQuery on there. Mm-hmm. So your page will wind up including two, three, four, five different references to jQuery, right. and they may all be different versions of it. So they all stomp on each other. And then you get then you get all kinds of craziness that can happen in the browser. If you if you go to the average web page and you look at the console and look at look at the errors that are logged there, you you start really kind of feeling what's going on. Um, uh, you know, and the browsers are starting to pull more and more uh, you know old APIs out that that have been replaced with better ones. They're also tightening the security walls. Like uh, like a common one right now that I see is this one about uh, cross domain cookie. Uh, stuff, which I, I honestly don't even quite understand enough to, to, <laughs> to make a substantive conversation about it. But I know that a lot of websites, uh, like really big common websites that you have references to, uh, don't have their cookie set. Like, uh, uh, like Stripe's one that I've been integrating in on sites lately. And like, if you call their, their Stripe JS from their, their, their CDN, it doesn't have its cookie set correctly. So you get this warning in there, but it's going to, it's going to turn into an error very soon and you're not going to be able to accept payments and, unless they get it fixed on their end, uh, wow. kind of thing. So, you know, those kind of things are problematic and that, that falls in line with that story about the, the media capture API. It's a very similar kind of thing. They, they warn you and they, and I had told my client that the media capture thing is going to break in December. Right, because here's the warning, and this is the mess. This is the document that Google has sent out six months ago about this, and they just chose to ignore me. And yeah. then when it happened, they freaked out. Fire! You know? Well, and that's that's a company trying to do everything right. Remember the story in was it 2016? There was a fellow uh, who had made the kick package in NPM. I mean, hang on. Uh, yeah, this was a, a young man who got into a, a fight over the name Kick because there was also a communicator called Kick, and uh, and so he and and in, in the 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 company went to NPM and said like you have to change these names and the guy got pissed off and he pulled his package called Kick. It's not a big package, mm-hmm. but it had a function in it called LeftPad, which was eleven lines of code, and oh, so I many people this. took dependencies on it, it broke tremendous yes. yeah. numbers of sites. Yeah, just but they were also referring to it by URL, right? They, it wasn't something that they were downloading. And they were doing it from the npm it. reference, and mm-hmm. so yeah. when the npm reference got pulled, it just tore stuff apart. Like it was massive, uh, and so, it, it just so brings there, back be, that. There's point. a good example of yeah, it's a really great example. But at the same time, a lot of times I'll look through libraries like that and I'll see how do they do it, and I and I add it to. I've got my own little utility utility objects. For, for lambdas and, and uh, client-side code. And if I need to, I can drop it in there instead right. and, and just make it kind of part of my, my core uh, functionality. But at the same time, how many developers would actually go through? They're just like, oh, I read this article and I need, to, I need this package. Even though the package is like you know 200 kilobytes, and it's got one little 11-line function that I need, I'm still going to put the whole package in there. Right. Um, me, I'm looking for those 11 lines. What are they doing? Um, I'll give you a good example of one that I did. Well, especially when the eleven um, lines was left pad, which was literally like adding padding to a string. Like it was exactly. Like, you get the really, stack over. Really, we're going to write that? Okay. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah, uh, but uh, um, so I'll give you a good example of one that I. Uh, so most, let's say most jQuery plugins 
all they're really doing is adding and removing CSS classes in a lot of cases. That's right. ultimately what, the, what it boils down to, right? Um, so uh, I'm into material design when I when I put things together, and uh, you know Google's got their own material design library. It's not it's honestly not used that often. It's not I don't think it's written that well either. But you know the little snack bars that come up essentially is like confirmation. Uh, overlays that just little small things at the bottom of the screen or top of the screen kind of thing. They've got a component for that. And I was like, well, let me just, let me just drop it in there. It's a standalone component. And it was like 60 kilobytes JavaScript. And I'm like, why do they need 60 kilobytes of JavaScript? And I looked at it and it's just like nest after nest after nest of Webpack code. That's all it was. And then you get down to it and there's, and I boiled it down to, I think, like 20 lines of code to add and subtract. You know, classes off elements is ultimately what it boiled down to. Um, right. But, you know, 60 kilobytes of code, and I boiled it down to like 20 lines. But most of it was just installation. Um, so, you know, it, I, I look at those kind of things, and I'm like, ah, what a waste. What a, you know, just it's just uh, tooling uh, code that, that somebody didn't really realize how to actually strip out of there, basically, is what it amounted to. But, uh, um, but again, it's a third-party dependency you, you, you hook yourself into. And uh, you, you, I can feel when I go to web pages that don't like load really crisply. And I can feel that kind of stuff, and I can mm-hmm. feel things breaking. And, and I look in the console all the time just because it's my nature to kind of say, okay, well, uh, you know, like I may see something on a site that I like, and so I'm immediately kind of tearing it apart and stuff like that. So, yeah. For sure. uh, so I see all kinds of crazy stuff out there, and then I look at stats like the HTTP archive data every now and then, and then I see crazy stuff there. And yeah, I talk to the guys on the Edge and the Chrome team, and they tell me crazy stories. I talk to the guys on the Bing and the Google teams, the search teams, and they tell me crazy stories about stuff that they find and and, and things like that. So right, yeah. The, the I think your salient point here about jQuery is essentially the thing you wanted jQuery for, which is Sizzle is largely handled now because browsers, you know, ECMA has evolved the standard successfully. Well, okay, so ECMA is the JavaScript side. That would be yeah. the W3C. Okay, the uh, W3C. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's very problematic. I can't even keep them all straight. Right. So, like, you know, Carl's into the WebAssembly. They have their own different standardization group that I don't follow. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and I, I don't read the ECMA standard very much. I do read the W3C stuff about the HTML and, and, and browser APIs quite a bit. Uh uh, just because it helps me keep things sanity. I don't think I've read the service worker one at least six times all the way through. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, so um, but yeah, a lot of the stuff. That's the thing about it. You got to you got to look at it and go, okay, uh, do I really need to? What, what is the uh, the eventual tax of this polyfill on me? Right. And that's ultimately what you're doing when you're throwing a library in there when a standard is actually there or in the works. Uh, it's a polyfill. Um, you know, another one that I see on a lot of sites is Modernizer. I, I don't yep. really know. Right. I don't really know why we need Modernizer anymore. Hmm. Um, well, we knew why we needed it at the time, but the time has passed. Right. Exactly. But I see a lot of brand new sites with that built in. Like so many WordPress themes just have jQuery Modernizer just part of it. Right. They, there's just no thought to why. It's just I, ca- I cloned a theme that was made eight years ago, yeah. cleaned it up a little bit. It's still got the jQuery modernizer reference in it, even though they're not even being used or, or whatnot. So, yeah. So, the, it just occurs to me that things are happening so quickly that it's just as important to forget things than it is to learn new things. Oh, I've forgotten so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real balance. I mean, I, I never had to forget things so quickly as I have in the last few years. It's a challenge. Yeah, you know... Well, you know, I, I was thinking about it as we were getting ready for this today. I'm like, okay, I was thinking back to the, some of the some of the things that we said in our conversation two years ago, like mm-hmm. the progressive web app talk. Yep. And I'm like, wow, some of those things aren't actually valid today because everything's changed. 
Sure. And they're going to keep changing. They're going to change, keep changing faster and faster. So, uh, you know, I look at it as how much can I really say is this is this is what I, I am fixating on and how long am I going to stay fixed on this? And I, for me personally, I was like, if I've got a core simplified architecture that works, then I'm going to stick with that. And I'm going to use third-party dependencies as I feel need necessary, but at the same time, I need to keep, keep track of where they are. Um, but, and I also kind of realized too, that a lot of the sites that, that any of us work on really have about a 24 to 36 month shelf life before they're probably going to get wiped out in right. many cases, especially if they're public facing. So how long should that, that hardcore dependency be there or not? Um, you know, like that, that, that example, that media capture thing, that that plugin that they threw in there had already been deprecated three years before they even added it to the site. Wow, that should that should have been they should, should never have been a clear signal. In. Yeah, yeah, right. But I don't I don't think their developers ever actually looked at the GitHub page. They just found the library somewhere and just probably copied it from somewhere and yeah. dropped it in there and didn't notice that no one had even bothered with the GitHub repo in several years. So, and and the repo even said on it it's deprecated. Yeah, so, you know, um, but uh, you know, it, but it, yeah, I see that I see. Those kind of things, you know, those kind of things add up to people thinking that the web's not a good platform, that the web doesn't work well. And that, that bothers me because I know the web's a great platform, sure. especially for, and it's made for client side experience. That's what it's all about. It's ultimately about user experience. And you got to make sure things don't break. And that's, that's ultimately what we're in charge of as developers is having that integrity to our applications and knowing that things aren't going to break. I wonder if part you know? of the, the unlock and need for polyfills at this point is that, you know, Chrome dominates. I mean, if you're going to write for one browser, you write for Chrome. Maybe Safari after that because you care about iPads and iPhones, but the the, uh, yeah, the iOS is the number one thing that people talk to me about, um, and it's business. You know, obviously, it's business stakeholders that come to me about it, right. and that's their number one thing. I mean, um, I think a lot of business owners have realized that Apple's pr- probably not going to accept applications. They're really very strict about what goes in the store and what is kicked out of the store. Sure. Like, like I had one guy come to me. I think last Mayish, and he had an application. Seven million paying customers. It's seven dollars a month. You do the math on that, and it wasn't. It wasn't forty nine million dollars a month. It wasn't a nefarious application mm-hmm. by any means. It was. I, I see other kind of applications in this type. This type of thing all the time. Um, they kicked him out and did not give him a reason why. Wow, you've and got the so, money for a pretty good lawsuit there, even with one of the most valuable companies in the world. Well, but they've got that 4.26 clause that basically says we can more or less just kick you out because we feel like it. Wow. Right? And that's that's ultimately what that's ultimately what they threw. And they said, you know, he emailed them back and they just said 4.2.6 to him and that was that. Um, so, but the thing was, everything in his app, there was no reason why it couldn't be uh, a progressive web app. So we just turned it into a progressive web app. And, uh, right, and going outside of the store. You're right. Um, so he didn't need to worry about that. And honestly, probably he's going to get more customers because it's just easier to access that Yeah, point. well, so. and goodness knows you don't find anything on app stores anymore. So all the better to just, now it's up to you to do your own promotion. And it still shows up at an icon on the phone. Like, people don't know the difference. Except that, and except that it care. doesn't break when iOS updates. So in that sense, they're happier. Well, you know, that's the thing about it. iOS is is the new IE6. Uh, by and large, but I will, I will give or, Apple, or Safari. I've always said that about Safari, but well, I mean, personally to me, when I, cause I'm not an Apple, I'm not an Apple guy, but right. I look at, at the, what I look at in the Apple ecosystem, I personally don't think they've moved much since Steve Jobs died. Um, yeah. I think it, it, it looks like to me for, as an outsider, it looks like all the innovation more or less stopped 
when they handed it over to Steve Cook. Um, From a browser point of view, Safari has been way behind for so many years. But in the last year, year and a half, they have really been moving forward with support for modern features in Safari. So it's gotten a whole lot better. Yeah. Uh, it's still. I would still say it's not on par with where Chrome, Edge, and Firefox are right but now. It's still, uh, and in, in the Senate, you know, I've always said Safari was like IE6 in the sense that it was popular, but also not compliant. He said that's the only reason we cared, right? Is that it was still popular. There was still a non-trivial number of customers that were going, "Hey, this doesn't work right on Safari." Yeah, and you get and the other side of it too. Like in the U.S., uh, iPhones are the dominant phone. Yeah. When you look at a particular phone, it is the dominant one, uh, even though Samsung outsells everybody worldwide. Sure. Right? Um, but uh, and the other side of it, too, is people who have who have iPhones tend to pay more for stuff than yeah. people who have Android. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so from a business point of view, you, you have to you attack that, that, so, that uh, Apple ecosystem. So from what I see, Android is is above – well, actually – Attaining the iOS is attaining parity with Android, but Android has been the dominant platform since 2012. But in August of 19, they sort of almost came together. Yeah, I don't know. I think Android's got a lot more devices net. The the yes. we're worried about the browser here, and in in the browser scenario, because you can get Chrome for iOS, and so lots of iOS folks are also running but, Chrome, right. but it's not Chrome. It's this is very this is very this is a very important point that uh, so many people get wrong. Yes, you can download Chrome, Firefox, and Edge on iOS, yeah, but right. they're not Chrome, Firefox, and Edge. They are a they're a uh, a web view running a scaled down version of WebKit. Hmm. And that's 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 very different. The only reason those the only reason those exist are called pseudo browsers. The only reason those really exist is to sync up your passwords and favorites. And that's ultimately what it what it is about. Oh, I um, see. Yeah, that's that's ultimately what you gain from that. Uh, I'm sure there's a few other little features here and there. Like I know, uh, I know the Edge team's trying to trying to to add as many of the UI functionalities you get in regular Edge over there. But the actual engine to render pages and and provide functionality is still WebKit, and it's not even as the full set of WebKit as you would get in the Safari browser. So, so, so there's a there's a problem there. Like, like I don't even know if the uh, service worker progressive web app aspect of it actually works uh, from from within those. Um, but I don't know how. I honestly don't even know how popular they are. But you know, to I was actually and generally they're not. And the fact that it the fact that you go to a site on a Safari on your iPad and it doesn't work right, so you run quote Chrome yeah. and it also doesn't run uh-huh. right means you just go back to safari like it doesn't make any that doesn't solve the problem you actually have right. exactly right um and i think uh, going back to the stats that you were talking about richard there was a i downloaded a, a survey like earlier this week mm-hmm. or late last week anyway uh some some company that does an annual survey of actual mobile landscape stuff and in north america iphone is the predominant brand right okay well, once you get out of north america it drops off, yeah. and especially when you get into Asia and Africa. Like, there's almost no iPhone except right. for China. China's iPhones are really popular in China, right. um, so I'm, I'm not sure what the price point is to get them over there. But uh, like, I know when I go to India, like Androids everywhere. You very sure. rarely see well, an because iPhone. you can get a twenty dollar Android, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, oh um, yeah, Android comes in all flavors. Or iOS because it forces updates. You know, which is also good for us. Like, at least whenever you run into Safari, it's generally the latest Safari. Well, it's the Mac of uh, phones. Right? Yeah. It is. I mean, they For control everything. The hardware, the software, yeah, everything. It's the, 
it is the walled garden yeah, model, yeah. but that's the, the strength of it. But Android has this deeper ecosystem that allows folks to get a device that is nominally Android and a heck of a lot less expensive. Hey, yes. hey Chris, uh, we're just about out of time. Any last minute things that you want to mention before we go? Uh, well, the only, uh, I guess the only big thing on my landscape as far as uh, the development space coming up is I will be in India at the C-Sharp Corner Conference next month, uh, which is mid-March. Um, I know I'm getting there and I get to go to Holy, which I'm really excited about. Nice. And uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, somewhere around the Delhi area for for almost a week or a little more or whatever, hanging out and doing different things. Um, I'm supposed to go to a couple of universities while I'm there, which I got to do last time I was there, and it was just a fantastic experience going to uh, some of the colleges in the area and stuff like that. Yeah, it's so, got to be fun. Yeah, so that, that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I love going to India. Those people are like so nice, and it's just yeah, so awesome. Well, the last thing I just wanted to mention, I'll put this in the show notes, but uh, I mentioned sort of WebAssembly, how you know, jumping out of the browser, and it's horrifying for Richard and you guys. And uh, I just wanted to <laughs> uh, mention this uh, initiative called Wasi, W A S I, and you can go to wasi.dev. It's the WebAssembly system interface. So this is essentially a standard that is a subgroup of the WebAssembly uh, CG. And uh, they've got GitHub repo and pull requests, and they're making it possible for WebAssembly to run everywhere. So I just wanted to mention that. We'll keep our eye on that. But Chris, thank you very much. It's always enlightening talking to you, and uh, I always learn something. Good. I'm glad you had me. I enjoy talking to you all, too. It's always fun. You bet, man. Awesome. All right. We'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.